Well, thank you so much, uh, Tyler, uh, band, praise team. Uh, tremendous day of worship today, uh, as we'll see throughout the text, really uh, just reminds us of what we're going to see uh, in this passage today. Also very appreciative, uh, Tyler, having, uh, if you're not uh, from here, or having, is this your new here, uh, the female vocals on this side is my wife, Shelly, and this is my daughter on the end over here. So if they don't get scheduled to sing when I preach, they don't show up. So I was like, I'm just messing. They, they don't do that normally sometimes, but you know. Uh, but uh, appreciate them leading us in worship today and uh, glad that you're with us. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, uh, kicking off a several-week study through the book of Revelation. A couple things for you, some logistics as we're getting into this series. First off, if you are not using our app and would like to take notes on that, I didn't know if you know that you can do this uh, today, but any week, if you go to the uh, Geyer Springs app, Daniel Champagne has done a tremendous job and has set it up. You can click on the media tab, and the outline that was in your chair when you came in is also on the app. And there are fields in there you can fill in, and there's a box where you can put your own notes in there. You can save that and have a digital copy. If your handwriting is as bad as mine, that is a huge help. And so that's available to you every week. But if you're more old school and your jam is, is pens and papers, the paper's there, there are pens in the back of the room. Because it's COVID season, that is our gift to you today, all right? So if you need to go get one of those, you feel free to get up and wander back there. Uh, I have raised three kids, so you will not distract me one bit by going back and getting a pen. So I invite you to do that. Well, as we get into uh, Revelation, it, it, uh, it, it's a unique book. I think sometimes we get to Revelation and it feels like we're entering a conversation midway. I don't know about you guys, but my wife has two sisters and we'll be together at Thanksgiving or Christmas and they'll be in the kitchen talking and I'll come in and they are way deep in a conversation. Well, you know, he did this and she did this and they're back and forth and I'm like, I just want to get a piece of pumpkin pie and get out of here, right? Because there is no way I'm catching up on mid-conversation about who did what and whose kid was where, what they said and all this. I'm like, she can give me the Cliff Notes version later, all right? I think sometimes as we get to Revelation, we can kind of have that same sense. We, we start in Genesis, we work our way through, we see all of this in the Bible, when we get to Revelation, we're like, what in the world is this talking about? All these images and these pictures and these names, these descriptions, and we're like, it, it's just, it, it's like it's a whole different book or thing, uh, piece of information that we're receiving, but it's not. It, it's just simply the culmination of what God has done. And when you think about God starting in, in the book of Genesis, he gave us a very detailed description of what? The beginning. Well, wouldn't it make sense that when God gets to the end and he's closing out things, he's like, you know what, I gave you a good description of how things started in the beginning and the plan then. Well, I'm going to wrap it all up and I'm going to give you a very detailed understanding, very detailed information about how things are going to end, how it's all going to culminate, and we see how Genesis ties to Revelation. So as we get to uh, the book of Revelation today, I've titled the message, The Beginning of the End, because we're at the beginning of this book that's going to focus uh, our hearts and our minds on uh, this idea of Jesus' return, his rule, his reign, and how things are going to end, and how God is going to be glorified into eternity uh, before all mankind and all of creation. Remember as you get to the book of Revelation, I think sometimes people come at it and they're like, man, I want to get the secrets. I want to get like the decoder ring, you know, to be able to how to understand all this sort of stuff. Well, look, God didn't give us revelation. There's not like some secret code. I'm not going to pass that along to you today and convey that to you. When you, the name of the book 
is revelation. Well, what is a revelation? It means to make something known. It means to uncover it. It's the same thing that, uh, uh, that Luke writes in Luke chapter 2 when the baby Jesus was taken to the temple and the, the, the man Simeon gathers him into his arms. And Simeon in Luke 2.32 says that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory and to your people Israel. That word revelation that Simeon says of the baby Jesus is the same title of this book. God wants to make known himself, his plans, and his purposes in creation so that we can see it and understand it and respond accordingly. Maybe that's to believe in Christ for salvation. Maybe that's to deal with sin and to give ourselves more fully to him. Maybe that's to share our faith with other people because we realize that people need to respond to Christ prior to his return. But he reveals this so that we might respond. So here's the first thing I want you to understand and remember as we dive into the book of Revelations. It's this. Jesus can transform your life if you will follow him completely. Jesus will transform your life if you will follow him completely. I'm going to do something a little different as we get to the book of Revelation. I'm going to start in verse 9. Just because to set the background and understand what's happening, it's way easier for you to listen to John's description than for me to tell you about it. And let's go ahead and get this out of the way. This has been probably my biggest uh, contention, my biggest uh, point of, of nerves all week long. Is Guys, I thought I was going to be able to hold on to 50, but I haven't made it. I'm now having to wear reader glasses. So let's just get this over with. If you want to text in your joke, your comment, online, whatever, here it is. The time has come where my arms are not long enough for me to be able to accurately read. So today we break out the readers for the first time ever in a sermon, and you're here to be a part of it. All right, so Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So I said, Jesus will transform your life if you will follow him fully. Verse 9 says, I, John. This is the apostle John from one of Jesus' original 12. He is the last living apostle at this point. All the others have died as martyrs because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, John has suffered as part of the tribulation. He referenced that. I'm your brother in tribulation and the suffering. He has suffered through. Uh, but he is still alive at this point. But he is on this island called Patmos because of his faithful testimony, his, the word of God, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he is now suffering at the hands of the Roman emperor Domitian, who was persecuting Christians because he said this, as the Roman emperor, he wanted to be called the savior of the people and their Lord. Now you can understand that Christians in that day were like, this is going to be an issue for us because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have one savior, we have one Lord and his name is Jesus. And because they refused to bow and ascribe that title to the emperor Domitian, he was persecuting Christians including the last remaining church leader in John. Now, here's why this, I think, is significant. As John writes and says, I, John, and he just calls himself your brother. 
I mean, somebody says they're your brother. They're identifying as one of you. They're just like you. But John was just not like any Christian who was around that day. He was a church leader. He was one of the original disciples. He had written the Gospel of John, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now he's going to pen the book of Revelation. He wrote five books of the New Testament, second only to the Apostle Paul himself. He was not just your brother. He was someone with a unique status and position and voice of authority and influence in the early church. But John says, hey, I am just like you in my walk, in my relationship, and in my standing before Jesus Christ. But here's why I think this transformation that John would even just say, hey, I'm your brother, is so significant. John had a physical brother whose name was... All right, you Bible scholars. Two disciples. James, yes. James and John were two of the disciples. They were nicknamed in the Gospels the sons of... Thunder, that's right, Sons of Thunder, because their previous profession was professional wrestlers before they came to, I'm just kidding, they, they were fishermen. But they got that nickname because, man, these guys had some moxie about them. They had a little, little swagger, a little assertiveness about them. James and John actually went to Jesus on one occasion and said, hey, when you get to your kingdom and you're ruling and you're reigning, can I sit at your right hand and my brother sit at your left hand? Those were the two positions of favor and of influence in Jesus' kingdom. And they said, hey, we want to be your number two and your number three man. Can we do that? Well, how do you think the other disciples felt about that? They were not real happy about that. We can't believe you guys went and asked that question. Now, we would want to do that too, but we didn't have, you know, the, the moxie to be able to go and ask Jesus that. So they asked if they could be number two and number three in Jesus' kingdom. On another occasion, they were about to enter into a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans there didn't want Jesus to come in. They didn't open their, their doors and their homes and welcome them in. They, they rejected Jesus and his disciples as they were traveling. James and John came to Jesus and said, Hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy that village? Jesus is like, no, I don't want you to do that. But that's what these guys, there's this brashness, this boldness about them. John had lived a long life of influence in the church. But being with Jesus transformed him to the place that John's nickname became the Apostle of Love. Think about that transformation from James and John, the sons of thunder, to the Apostle of Love. And you know why he was called that? Because when you read the Gospel of John, when you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and when you see it here in Revelation chapter 1, John emphasizes over and over and over again the love of God for his people in Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, there's a reference that talks about being at the Lord's Supper. And, and uh, Jesus is there is talking with his disciples, and they want one of the disciples to ask something. And, it's, and they reference John. He writes about himself, and he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And people are like, oh, well, look at that title, you know. It's, it's like being, you know, calling yourself the favorite child. I'm the favorite child of my parents, you know. And they like, look at this title of John. But I don't think John's reference in that way was coming at all from a place of haughtiness or pride or arrogance, I think John was overwhelmed. He marveled at the fact that Jesus would love a person like him, be patient with a person like him, do a work and transform him to the place that John was like, man, of all the people that don't deserve it, I'm a disciple that Jesus 
loves. And as you read the book of Revelation, I want you to understand Jesus can transform your life if you follow him fully. Because here's the thing, we've all got some things in our lives we need to deal with and we need to surrender to Jesus. Do we not? Maybe it's things in our leading our family. Maybe it's our relationships with our coworkers or how we are in the workplace. Maybe it's deep-seated issues of, of racism. Maybe it's anger issues that flesh themselves out on the highways or on social media. We've got things we need to work on. And here's the thing. Sometimes they're like, well, we need, I need Jesus to knock off some rough edges. Guys, we don't need Jesus to knock off some rough edges. We're not like, you know, mostly smooth and we got a few bumps here and there. We're these jagged crystals. we got issues all over the place. We need a radical transformation, not just a little bit of buffing to take place. That's our nature as sinful people. And we see this again as we get here a few verses into the book of Revelation. So John writes to his fellow believers and says, you are going through persecution. I'm enduring that as well. He's on this island. He's, he's slave labor, probably working in the mines that are there. And on it says the Lord's Day, on a Sunday something begins to happen. He has this vision. And here are two things I want to kind of give you as helps potentially as you study through the book of Revelation these upcoming weeks in the future. First is this, look for the like. When you are reading the book of Revelation, and if you're on your note sheet, this is the back side of that page, look for the like. When you see the word like in the book of Revelation, most of the time, it's referencing something that is symbolic in its description. It's not a literal issue, it's symbolic. So when you see the word like, and then there's a description, go, okay, what does this mean? And to help you in that, use a study Bible. Get a good study Bible. You can even find some good online resources. But as you read through without a study Bible, you're going to say, I see this, and I see this description. What in the world does that mean? A good study Bible will help give you a little bit of context, a frame of reference to guide you in what John is talking about. So with that in mind, let's dive into this vision that he had. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, verse 10, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Didn't say it was a trumpet because you can't understand a trumpet, right? Unless you're Charlie Brown's teacher. That's, that's what it would sound like. So it's a voice like a trumpet. And it was saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now that means obviously the person that was speaking because you can't see a voice, but the person. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And I put these notes in there just to get, give you guys, we're not going to take a lot of time. The, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches that were just mentioned. These are what we would know today as modern day Turkey. Lampstand is an idea of light. These lamps were giving out light. Jesus is the light of the world. The golden lampstands, they were treasured, they were valuable. So the seven lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. This is a description of Jesus. So it's telling us that Jesus is in the midst of his churches. Now, the early readers in those seven cities where these letters are going would have understood Jesus is in our midst. You know what that encourages and reminds us today? Jesus is in our midst today as well. He's working in our lives in the life of his church, which is still a lampstand to shine light into the world. Is that he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
this was a description. It's a picture of the high priest. When you go back and look in the Old Testament, the high priest would wear the long robe. They were the only ones to have the golden sash. So this is a reminder that in his role of a high priest, the leader in our relationship, our walk with God, Jesus is in our midst. And he continues on in this description. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. So you get this picture of white hair that looks like wool. So if this is literal, we're seeing Jesus with like a Will Ferrell hairdo that's golden white. Well, that's not what he's saying, all right? White here is a symbol, it's a reminder of people as they get older, their hair turns gray and then... Have you all met any older people in your lives? It turns white. It's a picture in the Bible of wisdom, that the older you get, the wisdom, white hair reflects. There's a, there's a wisdom, there's an understanding that comes with age. Here's the stinky part in the design, and maybe one day I'm going to ask God about this. As we get old enough to have wisdom, because I'm getting some gray coming in, and I'm raising kids, and I'm like, kids, look, I've got some wisdom now. Your kids are getting older, and they don't want to hear your wisdom at this point. I'm like, man, I finally got it, and they don't want to hear any of it. But this picture of this white, blazing, brilliant, shining hair of the Son of Man in the lampstands is a reminder that Jesus is, and the Bible term for this is omniscient. He knows all things. He is all wise. He is the source of all information and all truth. You're like, oh, okay. I see John's talking to the church and saying we can trust Jesus' direction when he speaks to us, when he guides us. He continues on. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This idea here, this flame of fire, is that he can look, he can see as a piercing, a penetrating gauge. We, we, gaze. We sang the song earlier. Uh, Tyler talked about the fact that Jesus was in the fire with us. When we go there, this is the term that describes that Jesus is all present. He is with you. He sees all things. He sees every situation. He sees every circumstance. He knows every detail of your life. He sees it. Why is that important for a church that's undergoing persecution? Because it's hard. It's hard to be persecuted. It's hard to go through what they were going through. And John wanted to remind them, Jesus sees you. He hasn't forgotten. He still cares about you. So he continues to the next part of the description. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Ancient kings would have their thrones elevated. They would be really, really high throne, have to take stairs to get up there because they wanted the visual reminder for their people. Anyone that came in to see the king was going to be beneath him. He was top dog. He was the ruler. Well, obviously, he was the king seated upon his throne. Another picture and image of a king, of a conquering king. You remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, at Easter time, he came in riding on a donkey, was there to make peace with the people, provide a way for them to have God. When the, when the king came in riding on the horse as the conquering king, we'll see later in Revelation, when a king came in to conquer, he would very often come out and find the king or rulers of the people that they had just overpowered, and the kings would put their foot on them as a sign of judgment and as a sign of conquering and saying, I now have the power and the authority over these individuals. And so this picture here is that of Jesus as the conquering king with his bronzed feet to say he now has conquered all things. 
We see this fleshed out in the book of Revelation. Again, an encouragement to his people that even though you're suffering now, Jesus is working. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. It was loud. It was powerful. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. This is that picture we see of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before his disciples in all of his glory. His glory uh, was shining through. The two-edged sword is this picture of spoken judgment that is coming out. It's cutting through to the the heart, to the soul uh, that the Bible talks about. He is pronouncing judgment, and his judgment is final, and it is authoritative. So we see this picture of Jesus returning, which brings us to the second thing I want you to remember this morning, and that's this, that the right response to Revelation is worship. The right response to the book of Revelation and to God revealing himself to you is that of worship. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Do you know that the number one response, the response of every human being, remember I talked about our rough edges and and us not having rough edges, we're jagged all over the place, we are sinful people. When sinful people are confronted with the righteousness and the holiness and the purity and the power of God, their number one response is that of fear. Every single time in the Bible, we see them bow in worship and reverence and awe and surrender and say, Lord, I am not worthy. I am a sinful person, not deserving of anything good that may come from you. I'm I'm just not deserving, not worthy of that. That is the response that John has as well. But we see the mercy of Jesus because it says, He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. We sang earlier the, the song, Beautiful Name, and we begin to see these names of Jesus. I am the first and the last. Genesis to Revelation Everything in between is about Jesus. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What does that mean? That means Jesus purchased a way for our salvation. His death made it possible that we too can be living ones with him into eternity. I have the keys of death and Hades. Uh, These are the descriptions of the places, the New Testament translations, Greek translations of the Hebrew words for death. The place where people separated from God go. And Jesus says, I have the keys to that place. When I unlock it, I can unlock it. But when I lock it, it is locked. I am the one who has the authority of that. So he tells John, write therefore the things that you have seen. So that is a description. And this is in your notes here. As you read the book of Revelation, there are basically three parts, three scenes you need to understand. Right what you have seen is the vision we just looked at. That's over now. Right what you have seen. Then he says, uh, and write those that are. This is chapter 2 and 3. When he writes to the churches, those are the things that are. And then chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation are those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, The word angels also means messengers. And so the thought here uh, for most scholars is that the angels of the seven churches means it's the pastors, it's the elders, it's the leaders of the seven churches. Jesus is saying, "I'm I'm among the churches and I have the pastors, I have the leaders in my hand and I'm directing them, I'm guiding them, I'm, I'm, I'm instructing them, I'm giving the power they need to accomplish my plans and my purposes in the world. And then he wraps up by saying that the lampstands are the seven churches. 
Whew, that's a lot. Verses 9 through 20 of Revelation. That's, that's a, just 11 verses. We're just over half of the chapter. This description, this vision of Jesus. And John says, this is what I saw. The voice instructed him to write things down. And so he writes chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 4 through 22. John has all of this information. And then he sits down to put it all together. Okay, now I've heard it. I've seen it. I've written it all down. Now I need to pass it along to these seven churches. And he writes an introduction to this book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. He says, let me tell you, give you a little description, set up what you're about to read. And this reminds us that Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. Look at this description that John gives here. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the thing that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. This picture of servant here is not someone who is uh, in, in servitude and bondage as a form of slavery because they have no other choice. It's the word for bond servant used in the New Testament. It's a description going all the way back to the book of Exodus where a servant worked for a master and the time for him to be free came up. He could be freed from his service to his master. He paid his debt of seven years, whatever the agreed upon time was. The servant was to be set free. But that servant says, you know what, this master has been gracious and good to me. He's given me a place to live. I have food to eat. I have clothes on my back. I, I work for him, but these things are here. I've had a family. may have had a wife. He may have had a children. They could all be set free as well. But that servant comes and says, I want to give myself in faithful service and obedience to this master. And so I voluntarily become your bond to servant. And so they would go to the doorframe of a home and take an awl, an A-W-L, which was used to put holes in leather, and that servant would put their ear on the doorframe and they would pierce that ear with that awl as a mark indicating that they were a servant for this master. And the Apostle Paul tells us that as bondservants, slaves to Jesus, we are to be crucified with Christ. We're to be marked, identified as his servants. And John says, this is what the revelation was given to me. Uh, as a servant of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. There are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. The, the beatitudes are defined by this word blessed. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Numbers carry significance in Revelation. I won't go through all that today, but I do want to say the number seven is the number of perfection, of completion. It's the number that represents God. So these seven beatitudes are seven blessings that flow from those who do what this verse says, hearing, believing, and obeying the words that he gives. Verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. We talked about these earlier, the grace which is unmerited favor. Don't ever forget that definition. Grace is unmerited favor. We are a people of unclean lips. We are sinful through and through, but because of his grace that we do not deserve, Jesus makes a way for us to become his children, his followers, because of his death on the cross. He gives us grace, and that brings peace, understanding, and trusting 
his work in our lives. These next verses describe the Trinity. The word Trinity means it's the three in one. It's that God is three separate parts, but he's still one God and he is fully and equally God in these roles. This is a unique formula. Usually when you see the Trinity referenced, it will be God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the, the timeline that we see in Scripture. God the Father, Jesus comes. When Jesus leaves, he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But in Revelation, John changes that order. Now here's why John does that. Because he's going to celebrate and lift up and exalt and praise and worship Jesus. And so the formula would have been God the Father, Jesus, 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 and the Holy Spirit. So rather than follow that formula, he said, this is God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and now let's talk about, let's celebrate Jesus because he is worthy, worthy of our worship. And so he describes God as being the eternal one. Uh, in verse 4, he says, who is, who was, and who is to come. Think for just a moment about that description of God in your life. The God who is you realize God is with you now. He is in the moment, your situation, your circumstance. You may feel forgotten. You may feel very alone. You may feel like you are the only one in whatever situation you're in, but God is. He starts in the present to remind you that he is with you. The next description, who was? How do we know God is with us? Well, just if we pause and we look back and say, has God been with me in the past? We say, yeah, God has been faithful. Have there been those situations and circumstances? You didn't know how things were going to turn out. It was beyond your control, beyond your power. You didn't know if any good could come out of that situation or circumstance. But what did God do? He showed up. He revealed himself. He did a work in your life. God who is, who was, so what does that mean for our future? Who is to come? He will be there. He's going to be there. He's been in the past. He's with you now. He will be with you into the future. So he describes God as part of the Trinity. He moves on uh, and he says, and, to, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and that's a unique description of the Holy Spirit, but remember the number seven, the significance of that? This is, this is now the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. The Holy Spirit is present now, but he hasn't been fully revealed. But in this time, he is fully revealed, and we see the Holy Spirit working at the throne before God. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This faithful witness is a description of Jesus as the prophet who comes to deliver a message from God. The firstborn of the dead uh, is the idea that Jesus died for us so that we could have a way to have a relationship with God. It's his priestly function in the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus was a prophet, but he was also a priest making a way that we could have direct access to God through him and his death on the cross. And it says, and finally, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So this is that Jesus is fulfilling the role of king. We see through the Bible a very common description of Jesus and his work and his ministry is that he is the prophet, priest, and king. So we see this description of Jesus. What did I say this passage is about? Jesus is worthy of our worship. Why is he worthy? Because he's all of these things in our lives. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. I said John is the apostle of what? 
the apostle of love. Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Because he loves us and he freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom. We are identified together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are priests to his God and Father. We no longer have to go through a priest. Now we can come to God directly. He hears our prayers. He works in our lives. He speaks to us. He guides us. He directs us directly because of Jesus. And because of all these things, John says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. May we never cease praising, exalting, lifting up Jesus because of what he has done. And he says here, this reminder, behold, he is coming with the clouds. The clouds represent the presence of God. From Moses we see, from Elijah, when the rain came back, that God's presence was coming back among his people. And Jesus uh, went up into the clouds, said he would return in the clouds. Clouds remind us of God's presence. He says he is returning. Uh, behold, he is going to return with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Is a reference to Israel that had rejected Jesus when he came, but they would see him returning and they would turn to him. And all the tribes on earth that's the people who had rejected Jesus will see him and they would wail recognizing they hadn't responded in obedience to Christ on account of him and then he uses the Greek phrase and the Hebrew phrase for emphasis even so and amen which means so let it be this cannot be changed it cannot be altered Lord this is our prayer that all of these things that are going to happen will indeed happen for your glory and your honor and he gives this final description that I want to leave us with today I am the Alpha and the Omega that's the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet it's a reminder that Jesus is the beginning he's the end and he is present and he oversees all things in the middle anything that be, can be communicated or known Jesus is it. it is through him says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty today as we read these words and these descriptions what we're going to do today for a time of response is I just wanted us to celebrate and remember and just say man this is incredible to see who Jesus was remember what he's done and to be reminded that because of his love for us who are sinners and not deserving of it we have been made right with God he's called us to himself he has redeemed us he is doing a work within us and he will continue that so as Tyler and I were talking this week they, they said we're going to sing the song faithful now and I was like are you kidding me faithful now faithful now what is that verse that's repeated twice in the the first chapter what does it say the God who is who was and is to come. What does that remind us? It reminds us of the last thing I put in your notes. The God who has been faithful in the past is faithful now, and he will be faithful in the future. I want you to celebrate that. I want you to remember that today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand up, and we're going to sing this song. And I don't want you to just sing along. Like, me, me, me. No, 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 no. This is why we celebrate. This is the book of Revelation that says he is worthy of our praise. And I don't know where you may be today. I don't know what you may be going through. This was written to a church that was in persecution, that was suffering greatly. And Jesus says, I'm here. I'm in your midst. I'm doing a work and I will do it for my glory and my honor. So if you would pray with me and then let's stand and let's sing this together today.